Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The story we saw yesterday really has generated a tremendous amount of interest and pushback. The city of Moncton, which is really quite a nice place. I've been there. Many, probably many people have. In New Brunswick is removing the annual menorah display during Hanukkah. This is after 20 years. And uh, the mayor's rationale is just, is not rational. And I described it on my Twitter feed at the Roy Green Show as a cowardly act. But let's talk to somebody who knows more about it than I do. And uh, somebody who was actually there for the meeting between the Jewish community and the mayor. He's a member of the Jewish community in Moncton. Lee Lampert is a lawyer, Moncton-based, and a member of the Moncton Synagogue Board of Directors. So, uh, Mr. Lampton, how are you doing? I'm well, Roy. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm disturbed by all of these things that are going on. You know, it's uh, the, the wider and broader implications of what's happening are very alarming. And when we have a Jewish community in, in this country, multi-generational Canadian families who are afraid to actually celebrate Hanukkah, as they always have, that's a, that's a terrible precedent. Terrible precedent. Let's, uh, let's, let's, get, let's get at this Moncton decision. Did you have any forewarning of the Moncton mayor's decision? Don Arnold is the mayor. Well, we suspected something was up when we reached out, when, when the synagogue reached out to the city to uh, make arrangements for the annual uh, menorah lighting ceremony, which has taken place for approximately 20 years. There was a bit of back and forth, unlike in the past, and it seemed a bit suspicious. And then ultimately Thursday, we were invited to a meeting with the mayor and one of the town councillors and a couple of representatives from the city, at which point the decision was conveyed that uh, this year, the menorah was going to be banned from City Hall, as was the nativity scene. And so that was when we were first informed of that. Um, we asked some questions. We asked why the decision, why now, uh, and why the decision was taken behind closed doors. And quite frankly, we had no satisfactory answers to any of those three questions. So the nativity scene is banned as well, but angels and uh, other Christian symbols are fine, right? That's it. On, at City Hall today, there are Christmas trees, and all along Main Street on posts, there are angels and snowflakes, and the snowflakes are not religious in nature. The angels and Christmas trees are, and we don't object to any of those being present. We think um, you know, everybody should be able to have their symbols at this time of year and any time of year, but um, to, to, to ban the menorah and the nativity scene and not the angels and not Christmas trees, that in is that itself is by definition discrimination. Yeah. There's there's been so much response to this decision across this country. So can you give us a little more sense of uh, what it was like in that meeting? Because as I understand the mayor, Don Arnold, uh, cited the Supreme Court decision in two thousand fifteen separating state and um, and religion, which is a which look, you're the lawyer but I'm thinking when it comes to menorahs that have been there for 20 years, and that Supreme Court decision was 2015, so eight years ago, that's a hell of a reach. 
Well, I think so. And, and that's, you know, one of our questions I mentioned was why now? And yeah, why when they referenced the Supreme Court decision, we pointed out that it was from 2015. The answer was something to the effect, you know, something we've been thinking about for some quite some time. So we didn't get a satisfactory as to answer as to why now. In terms of the meeting, I was there along with uh, a few. I was participating virtually. A few members of the community were were present, and and some of them had have lived in their you know in the community for decades and expressed their you know severe disappointment that uh, this is a town where they've a city where they've lived and grown up. Uh, my grandfather and his brother had a business on the main street in Moncton, as did um, others in the community. Uh, worked in different trades, professions, and so, um, you know, different people expressed in different ways at that meeting the sense that, you know, this is, they felt that the the city council was turning their backs on the Jewish people at this time of year. It was upsetting, hurtful, and very disappointing. Um, you know, at, at a time in, in a world where we talk so much about diversity and inclusion, this is about as exclusive as it gets. You, you partially answered my next question, but I'll ask anyway. Did you then, uh, when you were meeting with the mayor, do you now feel threatened as a Jewish community in the city of Moncton and abandoned? I, we, we, you know, I speak on behalf of some. I can't purport to speak on behalf of everyone in the community, but I, I think many would share the, in the feeling that yes, we feel abandoned um, and and disappointed and and. You know, they they referenced this 2015 case in the Supreme Court, which, uh, you know, had to do with prayers being said before council meetings. If you read the case, I don't even believe it supports this decision. Um, the, the case says that if the state, in this case, city council, creates a distinction, exclusion, or preference that has the effect of nullifying or impairing the right to full and equal recognition, exercise of freedom of conscience and religion, there is discrimination. So here, by distinguishing us, by saying the menorah is banned, along with the nativity scene, but but angels and Christmas trees are okay, both at City Hall and, you know, downtown Main Street, um, that is, by definition, discriminatory. Well, it sounds to me as well as she's as though the mayor, she is green-lighting uh, more demonstrations, more, uh, more ugly activity that's directed at the Jewish community. Am I wrong? Look, I. Uh, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think about that? Well, because the meeting took place behind closed doors, we, we don't know who said what and, and what the thought process was. I, I have my own views as to what probably led to this. We've tried not to politicize it. You know, we made the point that the menorah is, uh, you know, a Jewish symbol. It's doesn't. It's not political. It's, it's a Jewish symbol. It's Hanukkah coming up in this coming week. Right. It's uh, it's it's not a political statement. It's it's in celebration of Hanukkah, much like the. Christmas tree and angels are in celebration of Christmas. And so, I, I, you know, we can all guess as to what might be behind this. I, I don't want to do so. Um, I think that, you know, if, if counselors and if the mayor want to make statements as to what led to the decision, that would be very insightful. But ultimately, what we'd like is for them to reverse what's obviously a very rushed, poor, incorrect decision that is discriminatory in nature. Yeah, and my understanding... Is approaching this week. My understanding, Mr. Lambert, is the mayor is not available to make comments or, or supply information. She's she's gone. She's unavailable. Which which is really un, unfortunate because the whole country is paying attention to this particular case in your city of Moncton. 
and uh, and it started. You know, people start to ask, well, is this what is this the model that's going to happen across the country? We already know that Jewish families, multi generational Canadian Jewish families, are afraid to dis- to, to display their uh, evidence of their being Jewish. Uh, because they they're just afraid because of all of the everything that's gone gone on, it's it's intolerable and um, it, it worries me. It, it really it really concerns me. I agree, and you know I think that as I said, this is the time for city council to uh, to come out in public, uh, reverse the decision, admit, acknowledge that it was done uh, on a rushed basis behind closed doors. It mm-hmm. was the wrong decision, and the, the proper process was not followed. They should reverse the decision. They should welcome the menorah. They should welcome Christmas trees and angels and any other symbol that any other, um, you know, anybody else celebrating this time of year wants to put up a symbol. I think, you know, that that's what should be done. And everybody should be welcome. Again, when we're talking about inclusivity and diversity, um, let's let's include people. Let's show that we're a diverse uh, city, province, country. Yeah, walk the walk. Sorry? Walk the walk. Exactly. Laurie Goldstein in the Toronto Sun today. I'm done with having to explain myself to Jew haters. I'm not the one shooting up schools, firebombing community centers, vandalizing bookstores, phoning in death threats, painting swastikas on people's homes, intimidating patrons coming out of restaurants and political events, or trying to block rail lines in Canada. Laurie Goldstein is editor emeritus of the Toronto Sun and a member of the Canadian News Hall of Fame. I have known Laurie for 35 years, and I have only the greatest respect for Mr. Goldstein. So sad you had to write that, Laurie. Yeah. Um, first of all, uh, thanks, Roy. Um, and I could say that you've always been a friend of and an ally of the Jewish community. So I thank you for that. My pleasure. Um, yeah, I um, just... My main motivation was that a lot of, I have a lot of, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are the children of Holocaust survivors. I've spoken to some very prominent people since all this started and just to ordinary people. And I live in a very Jewish area. And by that I mean um, uh, people who are visibly Jewish because they wear kippahs and buy their dress and their clothing. I mean, if, if I go down the street, nobody knows I'm Jewish. But if they go down the street, um, people know uh, that they are. And the Metro Toronto Police have been great. They've been here in our community, um, one command center outside of a Jewish school, uh, one outside of an old age uh, home, and they've, they've given great comfort to the community here. But um, I guess what I'm disappointed with is um, public figures cross the political spectrum, with few exceptions. I mean, what, what has happened here is that there are, look, there are legitimate concerns about what Israel is doing in Gaza. And I understand that people are, are you know, heartbroken about what's happening to um, Palestinians and innocent Palestinian children, just as others are, are heartbroken about what's happening to uh, Israelis and, and, and what happened to them and, and, and the kidnapping and the murder um, and, and the killing babies. And, you know, I think if we're full human beings, we feel for both, uh, both of those things. But, but what we're seeing to me increasingly, as it's getting worse and worse, is the, the, those legitimate things. What's happening is that Jew haters are glomming onto that. And these are people who hate Jews. And that's what this is about for them. This isn't about Zionism. This isn't about Israel. This is about the oldest hate in the world, which is Jew hatred. And I don't like the term anti-Semitism. 
that's a confusing term. No, forget that. It's true hatred. Just like I don't like the term Islamophobia. No, no, it's not Islamophobia. People are afraid of Muslims. You're hating Muslims. And that's what's happening as well. Because once you let this thing out, out and you don't knock it down, it's never just the Jews. It never stops with the Jews. Um, and now, now, now it's hitting Palestinians, innocent Palestinian families, and Muslim families, and Arab families. And, but, but, but for me specifically here, I'm just tired of people. I don't care if they march against Israel. I'm fine with that. I don't care if they protest. I don't care if they chant from the river to the sea. I understand the emotions that are, that are going on here. But when you start firebombing a Jewish children's school, when you, oh, no, no, sorry, they didn't firebomb the school. They shot at it repeatedly. Or you firebomb a community center or a synagogue, or you paint swastikas on the doors of Jewish people. Go to hell. You just go to hell. And any politician who doesn't have the courage to denounce that, just as they should any form of hate, whether it's against Muslims or Arabs or black, look, there was a, a, a mosque where, where some idiot threw feces on the door of the mosque. What the hell is wrong with people? This idea that Jews in Canada are responsible for the policies of the Israeli government, have they not been reading? There are many Jews who are opposed to the responses of the, of the um, Israeli government. Um, you know, but using their logic that, oh, no, it's okay to vandalize a storeroom by a Jew or, or intimidate the patrons of, of a restaurant um, uh, that's owned by, by a Jew or, or to storm a, a, a trustees meeting and terrify them because you want them, the board to do some stupid thing. Um, uh, where do you get the idea that Jews here control Israeli policy. Because if you want to use that logic, that Jews in, in Canada and Toronto or, or in Ontario are, respond, are somehow responsible and they're getting what they deserve it, well, then the equal argument on the other side is, oh, well, I guess Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims deserve it because look at what Hamas is doing. So people here are responsible. And the difference is I would never do that. I would never, ever say that because what Hamas does in, in Israel or in Gaza or in the occupied territories or what Iran does or what Hezbollah does, that, that Canadians of, who originate from that area should somehow be, be shamed and, 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 and have hate uh, thrown at them and have bullets fired at their schools. Okay. Like, I just, and I know you're talking about this thing in Moncton. And, and to me, it was like... Laurie, I'm sorry, I only have a few seconds. Okay. The thing, you know, out in, in, like, stop being cowards. Just stand up to evil, will you? It's not that hard. You may have heard that the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jabr of the United Arab Emirates in Dubai, got into a bit of an exchange with the former UN Special Envoy, for climate change, and Al Jabber said, please help me show me the roadmap for a phase-out of fossil fuels that allow for sustainable socioeconomic development unless you want to take the world back into caves. That turned uh, the meeting upside down. And uh, there's a lot more in this story. He went on to say, I don't think you will be able to help solve the climate problems by pointing fingers 
are contributing to the polarization and the divide that is already happening in the world. Show me the solution. Stop pointing fingers. Stop it. So that's quite the story. And I've put it on my uh, Twitter feed, at the Roy Green Show, at the Roy Green Show. So the president of uh, COP28 in Dubai, and we've got 800 people there, Canada does, our delegation, saying uh, eh, phasing out fossil fuels is not the way to go unless we want to go back and live in caves. So there is, as you know, confrontation between the Alberta government and the federal government. And I've spoken with Premier Daniel Smith on this program about this issue. Uh, and quite recently, she's in uh, Dubai. And just a few days ago, maybe a week ago, the Premier accused the Trudeau government of being lawless. So let's, uh, let's get into that. We have two guests. We'll start with Ted Morton. Um, Ted Morton, as many of you know, was an extremely significant player with the Alberta government, former Alberta Minister of Finance, Minister of Sustainable Resource Development, also in 2001, a member of a group of six Albertans, including Stephen Harper, who wrote the so-called firewall letter calling on the Alberta government to use its constitutional powers to reduce the influence the federal government had on the province, including withdrawing from the Canada Pension Plan. Sound familiar? Tad, thank you for, for coming on the program. First of all, that, uh, that comment from uh, Al Jabber in, in Dubai, that's a mouthful. He's not the first to say it, and a lot of others are going to say it too. The The current climate change uh, policy uh, uh, plan is on a collision course with affordability, uh, particularly for the developing world, but also in places like Canada and the U.S. I mean, affordability has become the number one issue for Canadians. A lot of it's driven by the price of oil and gas and now electricity. Yeah, people are, uh, people are hurting economically, and it's being shown and sustained, that argument's being sustained in the polls. So confrontations with the federal government when you were the Alberta Minister of Finance and then the Minister for Sustainable Resource Development appear on first glance to be very similar to what uh, the government of Danielle Smith is facing dealing with Justin Trudeau's liberal government. Is, is it broad brush true or, or even more specific than that? Well, I think what uh, Premier Danielle Smith is doing is... Uh, just uh, the latest version of a long history of Alberta premiers uh, playing offense rather than defense and trying to get a fair deal from Alberta. I could I could uh, ring off uh, two or three examples. I'm happy to if uh, if you want. Sure, where, please. Uh, yeah. Where premiers have uh, well, okay, I'll start. As every all your listeners in Western Canada know, Alberta and Saskatchewan, unlike all the other provinces, didn't get. Uh, when we became provinces in 1905, we didn't get uh, control of crown resources. And we fought for that for 25 years. During the 1920s, the Alberta government, uh, Premier Brownlee, passed uh, several pieces of legislation that taxed companies that were working on crown lands. And you can't, he knew it was unconstitutional. The courts declared it unconstitutional. But he turned those legal defeats, the defeats in the courts, into political victories because it got the publicity and the focus that. You know, what the heck? Why are Alberta and Saskatchewan not don't have the same treatment that all the other provinces did? So uh, you can use constitutional challenges. Successful ones are, are good. Uh, I can give you an example of, uh, of Peter Lawhey doing that. But even a loss in court can be an effective strategy because it publicizes, it makes, it brings onto the front page and onto the radio talk shows 
uh, the discrepant, unfair treatment of, in this case, both Saskatchewan uh, and Alberta. Mm-hmm. We, we've spoke, uh, spoken with Premier Mo on quite a few, few occasions about his difficulties and Saskatchewan's challenges of the uh, federal government. That is, as of the 1st of January, he's empowered um, individuals uh, in his uh, government to stop collecting the carbon tax, which is it's going to make some uh, greater waves than it already has. But, you know, when you talk about the the, the, the um, events that can take place that reverberate across the country, the firewall letter, the so-called firewall letter, which you co-wrote in 2001, as did Stephen Harper, he was part of it, that made, uh, that made waves. And it, whenever you bring it up, it still gets a reaction from people. Well, Roy, uh, when I was fighting for that and campaigning for that, uh, first as a leadership candidate and then still inside of caucus and inside of cabinet in the early 2000s, I was considered, those issues were considered somewhat uh, fringe, if you like. And you know, I never won. I tried twice and did not win the leadership. But uh, look what's happened 20 years later. Uh, Jason Kenney merged the parties, uh, Wild Rose and the Conservative Party of Alberta, progressive conservative into one party, the UCP. He, uh, he challenged, uh, uh, challenged the uh, transfer equalization program at a committee that approved most of the firewall, uh, firewall proposals. And now Daniel Smith has taken and has won an election campaigning on the sovereignty act. So the firewall letter has gone from, if you like, kind of the edge or the fringe of Alberta politics to the center of it in 20 years. And you, you won't be surprised, your listeners won't be surprised, that I, I think that's a very good thing, and I hope that uh, I contributed, you know, laid some sort of foundation for that 20 years ago. So today is an extension of what you experienced, including um, Premier Smith calling the Trudeau government lawless, quote-unquote. Well, I, again, just to, to give you a more successful example, Peter Law, he challenged the, uh, the part, of, part of the Trudeau National Energy Program was a tax on exported gas. And Lougheed and his uh, justice minister and energy minister uh, put together a very interesting constitutional challenge. They created a at least a prototype of a of a Alberta-owned natural gas company that was going to export gas in an Alberta-owned uh, pipeline to, to the U.S. through Montana, took that to the courts, and uh, one level of government can't tax institutions of the other level of government. Supreme Court said that, and they said the... Uh, said the natural gas export tax would be unconstitutional if applied. And he used, in that case, a, a constitutional victory then to go force Trudeau to add uh, Section 92A to the Constitution, why he's greatest legacy, uh, that confirms, it makes explicit what was implicit already, that provinces have control over the development and management of natural resources. And... That was, for, for, for Lougheed, that was to ensure we never got another national energy program, not another NEP. But with uh, Trudeau too, we have an NEP too. Instead of a national energy program, it's a national environmental program. So I would suggest that uh, Premier Smith is fighting the same fight that uh, Peter Lougheed fought uh, 40 years ago. So for the benefit- And I think she's going to win because she has allies, not just Saskatchewan. Even though Quebec opposes a lot of Alberta's energy policies, because Quebec believes in federalism and provincial rights, Quebec has intervened. Some of those Supreme Court decisions that Alberta has been on the winning side of recently, Quebec was on our side. And uh, you put 
that's that's and, and law he did the same thing in the 70s so so ted then for everybody listening to this program across this country let's pull everyone into the circle here where's all this headed well, I think there's going to have to be a, some frank discussions about the trade-offs between Trudeau's proposed energy policies and CO2 reductions and basically the cost of living in Canada. It's not just filling up your car with gasoline. The carbon tax has doubled already. It's going to double again before, what, is it 2030? Uh, everything we do uh, in a modern society, every the key components, uh, steel, um, what are they? Steel, cement, plastics, and ammonia fertilizer. Nitrogen fertilizer are very heavy on use of carbon. Everything that's made with them has become much more expensive, and there, there are no there are no affordable replacements for that in anywhere near the near near future. So, as I said, there's going to have to be a uh, a very frank discussion, a public discussion of that, and also a recognition of uh, this is an uncomfortable fact. But Canada only produces 1.5, 1.5% of global emissions. What we do on CO2 emissions isn't going to make a lot of difference in the world. Uh, but it, it could make a big difference in the standard of living, the affordability of housing, the affordability of fruits and vegetables. The pla- the, this whole thing on uh, plastics. Next time you walk into the store, look at go into the vegetable section. Everything is wrapped in plastic. Plastic keeps things mm-hmm. fresh. And, uh, and and less expensive fresh for longer. If you ban plastics, <laughs> watch out for your fresh fruits. Your fresh fruits and vegetables are going to get even more expensive, yeah. uh, particularly during the winter months when so much of it has to come from the U.S. So uh, there's a collision course, and uh, I guess you know what side of the collision I'm on. I uh, saw this as a perfect opportunity for us to talk further about the disagreements, conflict that exists between particularly Alberta and Saskatchewan and the federal government. And we've spoken, as you know, with Daniel Smith, the Premier of Alberta, on numerous occasions. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, as well. And they've laid out very clearly what their issues are with the Trudeau government. And I thought, given the fact that uh, COP22 is underway, we should maybe have a look at some of the um, historic challenges that have gone forward. And we just spoke with Ted Morton about that. And we're about to speak with Nathan Newdorf, the Alberta Minister of Development and Utilities. The minister's going to stay with us around to the bottom of the hour, and then we'll take some phone calls from you in Saskatchewan and Alberta, specifically after we have our conversation. But again, we have the Sultan Al-Jabbar, the president of COP28, getting into it with Mary Robinson, former UN Special Envoy for Climate Change, and saying, um, hey, there's really uh, no argument to be made for phasing out fossil fuels. I'm paraphrasing here. And let me quote now. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. You think about that. I mean, that really is uh, one heck of a, a mouthful from the president of COP28. Maybe we should have expected it. Uh, Minister Newdorf, thank you very much uh, for coming on the program. That surprise you that that statement by the president of COP twenty eight. It's great to be here, Roy. Thank you. Uh, maybe a little bit that he was so bold, but uh, I'm glad that he he uh, pointed it out that there's a lot of 
a lot of dependence on the, the oil and gas uh, resources that we have in, in this globe, more than just for, for fuels, but for so many other products that we use on a daily basis. Yeah, it's not going anywhere. The need isn't going to disappear. And that, as we've often said, is why the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan came to Canada. They weren't here to just say, hi, how are you? Let's have a nice breakfast together. They were here looking for energy for their countries, and Mr. Trudeau sent the packing saying there's no business case to be made. Um, you're obviously in touch with the Premier, right? Yes. Uh, how, is she, how is she describing what's, what's going on over there now? Well, I think uh, she knew she was going into the lion's den, certainly, with uh, many of the 70,000 delegates having a, a radically or even partially different view than, than our province. We are trying to bring a message of responsibility that as a government of Alberta, of a, a province that has a, a large um, reserve of natural resources in this sec sector, how do we develop that uh, responsibly and make sure that we are doing everything we can in a responsible and affordable way to bring down those emissions over an appropriate period of time? Yeah, and that's the argument that I've heard from the Premier and from the Premier of Saskatchewan. And it's I believe it's a sustainable argument, but it's just not something that the Liberal or Federal Government wants to hear. In fact, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, dismissed C-69, the so-called No More Pipelines Act, and they also, the Federal Court, set aside the uh, single-use plastics legislation, so they're not doing so well. Do you get a sense that uh, Mr. Gilbo is listening at all? Is he backing down at all, or do you think he's all in? Well, I think he's all in, unfortunately. We would we would much rather have a, a federal counterpart that is willing to just listen to the unique cases that ultimately we want to get to the same same place, but we recognize that it's Albertans and Canadians that pay for that path, and we have to be ultimately responsible to them and with their tax dollars in, in how we do this. And some of the technology that he's hoping to see just doesn't exist in a, an affordable form right now. And and that's where I'm, I'm, I'm discouraged that even with the federal courts ruling in our favor, he doesn't appear to be backing down or even recognizing that uh, they've made some significant errors and oversteps here. Yeah, he calls it an opinion, Supreme Court opinion. The The Supreme Court does not deal in opinions. He should know that. Correct. Yeah. They either uh, support you or they say you lose. You either win or you lose when you go to the Supreme Court. Those are your only two options. Just want to, uh, to run this past you, Minister. There's a, there's a massive opportunity here this country has. And Alberta is a key component in this, maybe the most key component. And that is the world needs our natural resources. They are available in abundance in, in Alberta. They're produced ethically. And they, if they're sold to market internationally where they're needed, would bring in billions of billions of dollars to support our social programs and are very much in difficulty healthcare system, and just improve the opportunities for for average Canadians. Am I missing anything there? No, I I think you've uh, really nailed it. That that is exactly what we'd love to do. 
there are challenges in, in getting our resources to those markets, of course, and I think those are important conversations to have with multiple governments and our First Nations with consideration for the environments that, that they cross. But again, I think the, the former guest you had said Canada only contributes 1.5% of global emissions, but imagine if we could help tackle the other 98.5% of emissions by getting our, our cleaner LNG to, to those markets instead of using coal or, or animal dung or, or whatever other um, fuels that they have currently. Yeah. But it's doable, right? I mean, you said it's, it's difficult and there are obstacles to overcome, but it's doable. And I know one of the real problems that we have in this country is interprovincial trade. We set up more barriers interprovincially than in many cases exist between competing nations, which is uh, frankly idiotic. But but that that can all be overcome with a, a degree of cooperation and understanding of the need and tackling that need and making life better for Canadians. Absolutely. And that's what we seek to do, even though while we assert our responsibility and obligations under the Constitution to our Alberta residents, we understand that we're part of a greater country in Canada. And when we do work together, man, it, we can achieve some incredible things. And I'm, I do hope that um, the federal government's listening to that, that, listen, here are some areas where we're not willing to uh, give up our constitutionally prote- protected jurisdiction, but we do want to work with them to a common goal, but in a way that not only accomplishes our emissions reduction, also accomplishes the affordability uh, of that every day where where Albertans and Canadians are looking at their bills going up. So mm-hmm. cooperation, collaboration is key to this. Well, the carve-out of the carbon tax for Atlantic Canada has got all the provinces talking. Some of them are demanding the same for themselves. First Nations are now uh, taking the federal government to uh, federal court on this particular issue. It's going to be difficult for the feds to survive on this. And yet Mr. Gilbo said he's going to unveil the gas and emissions cap in Dubai at COP28. He says oil and gas emissions will still be allowed by 2030, but only under very strictly applied regs. Not acceptable to your province, is it? Absolutely unacceptable. That that would basically be, be closing in uh, an industry that, as the Premier said in your, your opening here, is the largest contributor to GDP across Canada. And how would that help anyone if if that $125 billion annually was cut down to half that or whatever? Uh, it just would se- severely hamstring our abilities to do all those other wonderful things. And again, I think the Premier said it very, very well that we aren't moving away from oil and gas. What we do want to move away from is emissions. And again, we really want the federal government to understand that we actually support that that goal, but let's do it in a way where we can achieve it and we can afford it and we can continue to fund the things that we need like health care and other social programs. You must spend a lot of nights banging your head against the wall, right? <laughs> uh, certainly, uh, that is that is one option. I, I'm actually <laughs> very thankful that our stakeholders and so many of our citizens in Alberta are really paying attention and getting involved and educating themselves on the nuance of these conversations because they are complex. Electricity is not quite as simple as, as some would make out. There's a lot of ins and outs of it. So 
Um, I, I'm very proud of Albertans for being engaged and for listening to shows like yours and educating themselves and and being aware of the conversations because these are important. Well, they do matter for the generations ahead. We're, we're all in this together. We have 6.8 million Canadians who are living in food insecure realities, including 1.8 million children. And that is, that's, that's the population of several provinces, if you put them all together. And that's unacceptable for, again, I keep saying this, but it's true. 40% of Canadians go to bed at night worried about their financial situation. 52% are within $200 and not being able to pay their bills at the end of the month. The numbers of people who are living in, uh, you know, shelters and, and living in tents and living in their vehicles is going up. This is unacceptable. It's not something that we can that we can live with. Global News running the story today. Um, I just read it. A recent report from Deloitte Canada found only 14% of near retirees can expect comfortable golden years. The study looked at Canadians aged 55 to 64 and found those who likely won't need to rely on things like Canada Pension Plan after 65 at more than $900,000 in financial assets and likely own their own home outright. I don't know how many there are, but I know there are a lot of seniors who are facing difficulties. Minister, in your, um, in your, uh, uh, the letter that the Premier sends you, and uh, it's not an instruction letter. What's what's it called? The mandate letter. Yeah, the mandate letter. What what are you what are you mandated to do? What 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 does she want you to do? Well, very simply, what she wants me to do is make life more affordable for Albertans. Looking at some of these really key uh, items, and top of the list is utilities, the price of electricity, natural gas, and and the reason why that is so dominant in that letter is it's a primary input cost. It if we can bring the price of electricity and, and natural gas down for, for our uh, constituents in Alberta, it will lower the price of food because uh, grocery stores, grocery trains, they use a lot of electricity to keep their coolers running and their freezers running and the food secure. We all need food. We need it all the time. And, and that's a, a primary anti-inflationary tool that we have is bringing that utility cost down. It, it is impacted in our, our price of clothing. It's impacted in our price of housing. It's impacted everywhere. To be able to bring that down requires a significant amount of effort and understanding of a government and, like I said, a complex industry where we can increase the stable supply. We can decrease uh, the generating costs, the transmission distribution costs, the, the billing costs. One of the reasons why we have asked so urgently for the federal government to remove the carbon tax from utility bills because that's it's a driver of that uh, that inflation. So th- these are things that we are we are working on in every sector, but none more dominantly than than utilities, which have such a domino effect in every other area of our life. Mm-hmm. Saskatchewan is poised to no longer collect the carbon tax on the 1st of January. Premier told us that, Premier Mo. Just over three weeks. Is there a provision in the Alberta Sovereignty Act to do the same? Not at this point. It's, it's a little different uh, for Saskatchewan. Their utility sector is uh, governed by the Crown Corp, Sask Power, and, and they have a lot more determination. That we have deregulated uh, a large portion of our electricity utility and so we don't have that option. We we are not um, able to ask those entities to do something that would be against federal law. We would have no way of being able to protect them. So that's why we have to go to the federal government with that. And that's why we are trying to utilize uh, the Sovereignty Act in a way 
where we can protect Albertans to a greater degree than, than we've been able to do. Yeah, so isn't it stunning, really, that this federal government, which is terribly uh, suffering in the polls, this federal government uh, that um, is not listening to Alberta, is not listening to Saskatchewan, I, I find it really stunning and, and knows that Canadians are having great difficulty making ends meet, just being able to, you know, my standard joke, it's not a joke, my standard line about inflation has been, it's when you go to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning and you can't afford to fill up at either. Uh, it's stunning to me that they don't, that they can't just say, okay, we get it. Let's work with the provinces. Let's make this work to the betterment of Canada. There are many, hundreds of countries in the world who would feel blessed if they had the natural resources that Canada has. And yet here we are. We're, we're not using them. We're not selling them. We're 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 actually just uh, sort of de degrading them, and it's it's stunning to me that we have a federal government that behaves in that manner. Minister, thank you so much. I I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Roy. A pleasure and honor to be on your show today. Oh, I hope you'll come back. Hope you come back. We'll do. Thank you. Thank you. They're called incarcerated people now. Started out as convicts, offenders. Now it's incarcerated people. My uh, good friend, Serge Leclerc, who uh, passed away a few years ago, once declared Canada's most dangerous criminal, spent more than 20 years in special handling units in maximum security prisons, ran a $40 million drug lab while he was on parole and fooled the parole officer every time because the parole officer never went to check on him. Serge changed his life on his own. And he became an advisor, um, and helper to kids who were on drugs. And he said, I told me many times, I'm going to try and make up for my crimes one child at a time. And then as those of you who live in Saskatoon, who remember not so long ago, you voted Serge Leclerc into the provincial government. So, um, he was uh, quite an amazing man. But he had little respect, none for the uh, for the justice system. He thought it was a joke. I did programs inside Canadian prisons. I wanted to take him with me so he could be part of the broadcast, and the correctional service system, which had had him in their in their clutches for for decades, didn't want him back in to do a radio program because they were afraid that he would say what he knew. He would tell on them. So they said, "Yeah, Roy, you can come in and do the program," which we did, as I told you. But you can't bring Serge Leclerc in, and he and I both thought that was particularly entertaining. But here we are. Here's another story. And you know my guests. I'm about to speak to them, but let me just tell you this. A double-convicted first-degree murderer whose parole hearing, at which he was going to seek unrestricted parole, has been deferred from December the 8th to early 2024. Why has it been deferred? Let's see now. Oh, yeah. Because the double-convicted first-degree murderer demanded that. And the Canadian justice system allows and supports such a demand at the expense of the victim's family. You with me? 
In this case, the family of Don Edwards, former Team Canada and Buffalo Sabres goaltender, Lovey murdered Don's parents in 1991. And Don's been on this program a number of times recently. And I know that, because I've, I've known the Edwards family for, well, since that time, since 1991. And they're wonderful people. This whole family are wonderful people. And they work so hard to keep themselves um, healthy with this monster lurking in the background. He's threatened them from jail. And, uh, and now he, because George, George Lovey doesn't want to have the parole hearing on December the 8th. Remember, double convicted first-degree murderer. He doesn't want the parole hearing on the 8th of December. He wants it next year. Oh, sure, George, we'll do that for you, says the justice system. Don Edwards joins us with his wife, Tannis. This is, uh, this is just grotesque, Don, Tannis. This is, this is, this is piling horror on violence for you, isn't it? It, it is, Roy, and, and uh, I just want to start out by saying thank you. Uh, we cannot express in words how much we appreciate your support and all of the citizens that can stand behind us um, through all these years and still trying to put our best foot forward to change some of the justice system. I'd like to also say, too, that Lovey, he asked for full parole. He asked for the December 8th date. We all put our statements in, which he has the right to see 15 days prior. And then he withdraws his application, and he wants it in March of 2024. My mother and father-in-law were murdered on March 21st, 1991. I'm wondering if he wants that date to see us. Wow. Don? Well, you know, Roy, um, we've talked many times. Our family, in preparing for parole hearing, pour our hearts out in writing victim impact statements. As I've mentioned many times, many of us struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, another family member uh, struggles now with Parkinson's disease, which is also stress-related, directly related to this case. Um, in writing those statements, it's not easy. It relives a lot of old memories, but uh, we have to do it. Uh, it's plain and simple. When someone kills two people and tries to kill another and also threatens to um, harm your children, um, it's just not one nightmare. It's many nightmares because the nightmare with this individual and this felon never ends because there is always that threat out there, and we see him as a serious threat. And uh, he has a lot of liberties already. He lives, uh, last count I heard, was four nights a week in his own apartment. How he affords anything, given the fact he's literally never had a job, I don't think they pay minimum wage in prison, uh, but somehow he has money to, uh, to get an apartment and do the things he wants to do. So, and, and you know what, I mean, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I know the listeners across the country are recoiling each time they hear 
You write a victim's impact statement, Tannis. You write a victim's impact statement, which is massively difficult. And he gets to see it, essentially approve of it, two weeks before the parole board hearing. Yes. Yes, that is true, Roy. And also, uh, I just wanted to mention that in my statement this time, I stayed away from uh, the um, psychological side of it, being how hurtful and just how much that we struggle every day with it and how to protect our children and their children. This time I went and read everything that's on the parole board website about what they want to hear and the risk to society, um, not just the risk to us and if he has been uh, rehabilitated enough to join society. So mine was more about where's he getting the money from? How does he live? He never worked. How does he get CPP? Does he, who buys his bus ticket? Like there's a thousand things that we want to know, which we're not, um, we don't have the rights to see the Corrections Services Canada uh, release program for him. The only people that see that is the parole board. So he may have something totally different in there that we are aware of that he has some money, I don't know, maybe won the lottery or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. But at this point, we are not privy to where his funding will come to live in the society that takes most of us, husband and wife, to work to sustain any uh, well-being and owning a home or things of that nature. Yeah. Ryan, Ryan, in my statement, you know, basically I focused on a little bit going back to the sexual assault and lawful confinement with a weapon that Levy was charged with prior to the murders, which the Crown Prosecution decided to rescind after the he was found guilty of the two counts of first-degree murder, one count of attempted murder. They decided to, you know, not to forward with it. Um, so I focused a little bit more on that. And I asked the following question, because as you know, Lovey has asked to visit some areas that are very sensitive to us. They're areas, they're regions that are close to family. Um, he, you know, he's asked to go to Brantford, uh, which is virtually eight miles away from Caledonia, which is a very prominent place where the Edwards family reside. You know, he's asked to go to Grimsby. I believe that's where he has a brother that lives. And, you know, that's virtually 12 miles away from the, the, my mother and father's former residence. But um, and we know that, you know, in, in, in gaining in, in gathering the evidence and in court testimony, it became quite apparent that Lovey was guilty of the sexual assault and unlawful, unlawful confinement with a weapon. So I asked the following questions, you know, because we know that Lovey stalked Michelle. Um, after the sexual assault and lawful confinement. And I said, and, and basically I just asked them, it is well documented that Lovey stalked my sister during these visits. Lovey volunteered to wear an ankle bracelet, which was not applied by Correction Services of Canada. Who made that decision? Why was there no enforcement or tracking monitor? Why were the original police departments in these localities not contacted? Who was responsible for tracking Lovey's daily life? So it goes back to what you said earlier about your friend. 
And, you know, to say that there isn't faults in uh, correctional services of Canada and holes in, in the system and their professionalism to follow up and really monitor this guy or anybody that's been a convicted felon of, of this serious nature, it's quite apparent that there is a real gap and dangerous situation in Canada. Yeah, no question. Uh, Serge Leclerc used to, uh, he, he would point out the, and he would come on the air with me, come right into this studio. And he got into a debate one day with a criminal lawyer who was defending the system, and Serge had him for lunch. Um, because he knew the system. He knew he knew who, how it favored the, as he called, he refused to say offender, he said convict. You were convicted of something, you're a convict, you lose your rights. And yet here we are with George Lovey, who murdered your parents, your parents-in-law, mm-hmm. Tannis, uh, and, you know, murdered the parents and parents-in-law of other members of your family, grandparents. Mm-hmm. He's calling the shots. He makes the decisions. And you know what I find really difficult? We have to take a break here in a second. But what really annoys me, and thank you for sharing information with me. I hope I'm not stepping out of line here. But when you receive communication from the parole board, from their media people or their public relations people, public whatever they are, um, they start, folks, it's like you're, you're their buddies. Hey, folks, I find that, I find that reprehensible. Um. We're not sure who they're referring to, hey folks, because there's only myself and my, well, it's only my email, so she's hiding everyone else's, but I have no idea who she's talking to. No, no, it's it's the, so, it's the parole board sending an email to you. Yes, I know. And I, 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 I know it is, and, but I don't know who she's referring to if there's 20 people on it, because I don't know who she's talking okay. to. Okay, yeah, exactly. Me. Exactly. There are, to use Serge's words, convicts in the prison system who rehabilitate, actually habilitate their lives. Serge says you can't rehabilitate what's never been habilitated in the first place. But they do it themselves and with some help. He did that. George Lovey, he's, uh, as I understand it, Don Tennis, he's he's refused uh, programs to help him, hasn't he? Yes, yes, he has. And since 2015, he's been a moderate risk to society because he's decided which programs that he wants to participate in, even though Correction Services Canada has recommended numerous ones. So since 2015, his risk to society has not changed. So we're asking the question in 2023, now it'll be 2024 what has changed in his demeanor to let us know and society know that he's ready uh, and, and taken all of these um, uh, classes that were recommended uh, too hard. Roy, okay. I'd also like to add, in, this, in our last parole hearing uh, in, uh, in Gravenhurst at Beaver Creek, um, we learned that um, Lovey threatened to kill his uh, Corrections Canada assessment, uh, or not kill, but stab his Corrections Services Canada assessment officer. And he, um, when it was brought up, he said it was a slip of the tongue. Well, I've also mentioned in my report, in my victim impact statement, was it also a gaffe when he shot my mother twice and stabbed my, my father five times. It's also important to remember, too, and 
I've pointed this out too, that, uh, you know, um, the justice system in Canada looks upon these people as being, uh, as receiving rehabilitation, moving back into society. Well, imagine yourself uh, or anybody, imagine themselves um, walking out in for just a walk in a, in a peaceful park, uh, having a delightful dinner with friends in a restaurant, going to a sporting event, uh, driving your car on the uh, 401 of the Queenie, and all of a sudden looking beside you, and there is George Hart of Lovey. <laughs> yeah. You don't think that would upset you and all oh, of a sudden yeah. put you into hysteria? Yeah. Um, of course it would. So I've also said, you know, as, as you know, uh, I'm an angry man. He uh, took away a lot of my life. He's really affected my family. If I ever saw him on the street, there will be a there would be a confrontation, and I can't say we wouldn't get ugly because it probably would. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just the way it is. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.